you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. The following is a Drop D podcast production. Darkmyths.org and the Opus Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast. Featuring your host, Rob Clark. Where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Lone Gummin Podcast. This is episode number 150. It's a big milestone for me, and I did think I was going to start doing this again, but I've always said on this show, you know, if you got something to say, reach out to me and talk to me. This show's always been a place for research to shine and miss to die, and that's exactly what my guest has done today. He reached out to me. He's a guy who thinks out of the box, and for now, would like to remain anonymous, so we're going to call him Mr. X. Mr. X, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me on, Rob. No problem, man. Just real quick, just as much as you want to let people know, uh, maybe uh, uh, you know what got you interested in the Kennedy assassination or, or research in general? Uh, sure. Um, I've been fascinated with Kennedy ever since I was a kid, and uh, Oliver Stone's JFK movie came out. I know that turned a lot of people on to JFK research. And uh, over the years, it's just been very you know, casual. I always knew that uh, Oswald was not one of the assassins, but it wasn't anything that I really dove into. And um, I have an associate who basically spent, he's a historian, he's a geopolitical analyst, and he spent many, many, many years on the Kennedy assassination. And uh, he's done work on 9-11 and uh, the Robert Kennedy assassination and just a lot of historical events. And He's nailed everything that I've ever seen from him, and he can back up his work with documents, and um, he can basically prove everything he says. And, you know, he told me that uh, it took him eight years, and he solved the Kennedy assassination uh, pretty much top to bottom, can name the null shooter, um, all the other people in place. Um, There's a lot of things that he's dropped hints at that uh, are just absolutely amazing. And so I've had a little bit of guidance. And uh, for the last probably six months or so, I've been basically a full-time Kennedy researcher. I've been every single day without fail. I've put in probably eight to 10 hours of reading documents, if not more. I've killed at least 14,000 pages of documents in the last six months. 
<laughs> and I've learned that um, I've only really just scratched the surface. Uh, you can get a really good grasp of you know everything from uh, who gave the order, what initiated it, right down to who pulled the trigger. Um, and uh, I don't have all those answers, but you can get a really good idea of exactly what happened. It's just the minutia that will take a lifetime. Uh, as soon as I feel like I'm getting close and I'm wrapping this thing up, I find another hallway with a dozen doors. Um, <laughs> reminds well, me of the title of that early Kennedy book, uh, Lost in the uh, Master's Mansion, because it feels like every single where you turn is another hallway. And it will definitely take a lifetime to to navigate the entire thing. But yeah, today we're gonna you know go with the history, uh, everything leading up to it, and we'll see how far we can get. Well, welcome to my world, Mr. X. I mean, it's the never-ending rabbit hole. You think you got something figured out, and then five more doors open up, and there you keep going on down, down the rabbit hole. Um, so just to preface our conversation, because I used to be of the mindset of the stuff that we're going to talk about today, I totally dismissed it without even looking into it. Because to me, the theory of what we're about to talk about today, I never really took seriously until you reached out to me and I looked into what you're looking at and I see what connections you're making and we can put it into a cohesive narrative. So I would just reiterate for those out there listening to the show, not to dismiss this out of hand and make sure you just, just take a listen, just give it a chance and let Mr. X explain everything to you. You know, we're probably not going to get this done in one show. So just stay tuned and make sure you check everything out and, and give it a chance. So, Mr. X, okay, let's start as early as we possibly can just to set the table for everybody to understand, you know, possibly the why, okay? Where would you like to begin here? I can start pretty much anywhere. Yeah, let's start in the late 40s, you know, with, with the, uh, you know, after World War II, um, you know, the formation of the CIA, the ending of the OSS, the creation of Israel and, I'm, I'm, and, and the mafia. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the OSS because this uh, past week in particular, I've been pretty much just uh, studying the OSS documents between 41 and 45. And there's a lot of fascinating information there. The first thing you have to realize is that the OSS, um, they were pretty much just a propaganda disinformation organization. They did some guerrilla warfare stuff, uh, but for the most part, as the predecessor to the CIA, um, they just collected people, really. They began to formulate a network, um, utilizing the networks of people that they would recruit. So they grew very, very rapidly. I think at one point they had something like 40,000 employees of the OSS um, just between 1941 and 1945. So... Um, they played a very, very uh, crucial role in shaping the narrative of World War II um, and our history since then. Uh, when the CIA picked o uh, took over in 48, um, between 45 uh, when the OSS was dissolved and 48 when the CIA came around, these guys like Alan Dulles and Angleton and all of this network was still uh, functioning, but it didn't have an official name. Um, it was just kind of, uh, they were just kind of doing what they wanted to do and maintaining networks. And by 1948, the CIA came around 
uh, run by Alan Dulles. His key guy was James Angleton. I think everybody who's researched Kennedy knows those names and knows that much. Oh, yeah. Um, but one of the things that most people don't realize is that Alan Dulles was meeting with Adolf Hitler as far back as 1936. Um, the United States, through the OSS, had an ongoing relationship with the Nazis. Um, basically, I'll, I'll skip a whole bunch of stuff, um, but the OSS was basically just a psychological warfare unit. And after the war, um, you have a guy named Reinhard Galen. Reinhard Galen was the head of German army intelligence. He was Adolf Hitler's spy master. Um, he cut a deal with the CIA and... They basically, before Operation Paperclip, you had uh, Reinhard Galen and Alan Dulles and Angleton and Ted Shackley, who is crucial to the conversation, um, funnel 95% of the Nazi hierarchy out of Europe um, and into South America and the U.S. And uh, basically the trials at Nuremberg, they were a joke just like um, you know, the Warren Commission or the 9-11 Commission. It was the same thing. They put on a show, and uh, if they didn't kill you during interrogations, you got hung afterwards, and that was only like 20, 30 guys, something like that, if it was even that. But thousands of Nazis uh, were brought to the U.S. and South America to form large-scale uh, covert networks around the world, which has grown into what we currently live under in this security state. So... Uh, basically, I don't know how deep you want to get on this, uh, but Reinhard Galen uh, was working directly with Ted Shackley from 1949 through the late 1950s before Ted Shackley got moved over to the JM Wave station in Miami. Um, but Ted Shackley was Galen's uh, personal translator, and they basically implemented a training policy, uh, not really a policy, but a training mechanism that the Nazis used to utilize. Whereas they would take, uh, you know, 1,200 men or, or give or take, and they would run them through multiple uh, physical, academic uh, training, like kind of eliminations, right? And out of these 1,200 yeah. men, they would, um, th using tiers of elimination, they would kind of narrow it down to the best of the best. And what they would do back in Nazi Germany, it was they had they would bring final it down to three people, and those three people. Uh, those three men were the top tier of um, training. And so they were basically assigned to, if anything happened to the Fuhrer, one of them would take over, right? And then you had the next tier down, which were basically different tiers um, of hierarchy. Uh, right. Well, Reinhard Galen uh, duplicated that system, and we, him, along with Ted Shackley and Angleton and these guys, they trained another batch of men through this system and those men went – they came from the 17 nations that went on to form NATO in 1949. And so after training, those men went back to their, their countries and formed the intelligence units. Like here we had the CIA, and in uh, Israel they had the Mossad. In Germany it was the BND. These all formed in 1948 and 1949 along with NATO. So basically um, our world is basically being run by a bunch of Nazis. There's a really good argument yeah. that the Nazis didn't lose World War II. Um, Right, or so, we became the Nazis. <laughs> right. Well, we, well, yeah. you know something? Alan Dulles has, had been having meetings uh, since 1936 with Adolf Hitler, like to say that we were and we were enemies on the surface, and Dulles was cutting deals uh, with them on the back end. You know, like they were never at odds with them, and you can tell that's true because the corporations like Standard Oil, 
um, you know, were were yeah. funding these guys. I mean, the entire you know what we the, the entire establishment was behind the Nazis, but on the surface, uh, we were against them. So it's it's the world that we live in is not what people think. It's not even remotely close to what people think. And if people understood what was really going on, they should be scared out of their minds. Um, so that's basically how the intelligence networks around the world began. Uh, all the train, all the structure and training in spycraft came from Reinhard Galen. Um, uh, from that organization, which they called the Galen Organization, you had another network, which was created by Otto Skorzeny. Otto Skorzeny was Adolf Hitler's personal bodyguard. And he was recruited pretty much, uh, I think, by 1940. I think it was by 48 or 49. He was recruited by the Israeli Mossad. And so um, they were using him to go and hunt down his former Nazi buddies. And he was just a, you know, he's a trained killer. That's what he did. He just killed people for money. He was, he was QJ Wynn. Um, he was the, the ultimate hitman. Um, and he has direct connections to the Kennedy assassination as well. Now, I haven't explored those nearly uh, to the degree I need to. I've got uh, the Scorzani papers. I haven't really done more than just a, a quick skim through it. But there's a lot there that I haven't touched yet. And that connects to George DeMornshield and a whole bunch of other things. So... Right, um, but I've yeah, seen that so, as well. I've heard of an interview with a guy that that you know got a hold of these papers, and uh, I can't even remember his name right now. But there is more to the story if you'd like to just Google Otto Scorzani or the Scorzani papers, JFK, and you'll see some of the connections there. Sorry, go ahead, Mister X. Um, so that's that's it as far. Well, that's all I'm going to cover as far as like that intelligence network setup, right? So this is one thing I, I think is very challenging to a lot of JFK researchers is because they can't comprehend the large scale global global power infrastructure, um, and it's impossible to understand without understanding what happened with Reinhard Galen. Um, right. Well, I think you know a lot of us understand that the CIA. <laughs> had its tentacles all over the world and, and into some really, really shady things all over the place. And even, you know, a lot of people think that they're, they're behind the Kennedy assassination because Kennedy wanted to smash the CIA into a million pieces and scatter them to the wind. He fired Dulles, um, which, you know, probably triggered some things as well. But, you know, as we, as we move on up through here, uh, we're not quite there yet, but we'll get there. Um, you, you'll be able to see, you know, how all of these factors somehow relate back to the Kennedy assassination and, and have roots a little further back than you might have thought. So go ahead, Mr. X, and, and let's get into a little bit about the, the mafia. Sure. Um, so going back to like Al Capone, Al Capone was a he was a, a big shot. He was pretty much the guy. And um, he was based in Chicago. Uh, one of Jack Ruby's first gigs uh, was working for Al Capone. Um, Jack Ruby and Chicago are very uh, intricately connected to this, obviously. Um, but one of the first gigs that Jack Ruby had was working for uh, or working in a gang called the Dave Yiddles Miller gang. And Dave Miller was actually Dave Yaris. Um, Dave Yaris and uh, Jack Ruby uh, were very, very good friends. Uh, also, it was kind of like a trio. There was Lenny Patrick. So Lenny Patrick, um, who was a hitman, uh, Dave Yaris, who was a hitman, and Jack Ruby uh, were really, they grew up together, um, and they were really the best of friends. So, uh, But Dave Yaris and Lenny Patrick uh, 
they play a crucial role in this, uh, which we'll, I'm sure, come back to later. Um, but most people don't really understand the history of the mob. And honestly, I've only scratched the surface. There's so much to learn, but you can get kind of a grasp of what happened. But a lot of the, even the mob books don't talk about what really was going on. So uh, back in the day, you had the Sicilian mafia, and then you had what people called the Jewish mafia. Um, but over time, you, you know, you can see the, them working together as far back as like the 1920s. You had a lot of prominent Jewish mobsters who had changed their names so they could kind of fit in, you know, um, like uh, uh, Angelo Bruno is a great example. He was Angelo Annalorno, and he changed his name so he could fit right in, but he was still a Jewish guy. And that was very, very um widespread actually even by like the 1940s and 50s i mean it, it might have even been 50 50 by then but by the time of the kennedy assassination uh the so-called jewish mafia had completely taken over the american mafia um sam well, giancana can see oh, that. i was gonna say you can see that too when you look at jack rubenstein he changed his name to jack ruby so he yeah. wouldn't be obviously jewish you know what i mean yeah, it, it, it happened a lot. It happened a lot more than uh, is written about. But um, basically, by 1963, uh, people think that uh, Giancana was running the U.S. mob uh, through Chicago, but really Giancana was a frontman for a guy named Hyman Larner. Um, now, on the uh, other coast... You had uh, Traficante down in Tampa, you know, and then down in New Orleans, you had Marcello. And these guys were almost directly connected to Meyer Lansky. Um, and Meyer Lansky was called the mob's accountant, but he was not the mob's accountant. Uh, he who controls the money controls the world. Uh, he was the head of the global mafia syndicate. Um, so you had Giancana. Everyone answered to Giancana, who answered to Hyman Larner, who answered to Meyer Lansky. And who did Meyer Lansky answer to? Um, he answered to guys like Menachem Begin and Yitzhak Rabin and Yitzhak Shamir, who at the time, um, in 1963, were all Mossad hitmen, uh, more coordinators, but they were they were all killers. Um, these guys, and this is where we're going we're gonna to tangent off just for a second, um, yeah, because it's important to explain that uh, we have to get into terrorism. Uh, real quick. Now, to me, terrorism is uh, it, it, this war on terror is the dumbest thing ever. You can't go to war with ideologies. It doesn't do anything but enhance them. So terrorism in general, um, the father of modern terrorism uh, is Menachem Begin. Menachem Begin is the self-proclaimed uh, father of terrorism throughout the world. There's many interviews where he talks about this openly. But Menachem Begin, back in 1948, he was um, a diehard Zionist, and we'll get into Zionism in a minute. But he was a member of the Haganah. He, the Haganah, the Ergun, and the Stern Gang were three basically terrorist groups that went around murdering people and blowing things up, trying to get the British out of Palestine so they could establish the nation of Israel. Israel is a nation founded on a premise of terrorism. Um, it's, this isn't even like speculation. This is history, and you guys can go all check this out. If you look up Menachem Begin, he blew up the uh, King David Hotel in Palestine. It was, it's considered the first act of political terrorism of the 20th century, um, and their M.O. was false flag terrorism. Uh, they, everything they did for many, many decades that was blamed on Muslims. 
um, and I will tell you flat out, um, Islamic terrorism is a complete myth. Um, terrorism, like I said, uh, was uh, really instituted on a large scale by Menish and Begin and uh, his other Haganah or Ergun and Stern Gun, uh, Stern Gang terrorists. There's really no other word for them. Um, there were probably 200 assassinations and uh, uh, bombings before the King David Hotel, but that's still deemed the first uh, act of political terrorism in the 20th century. So that, uh, and see, really, when you look at why they implemented a policy of terrorism, you really, that, has, that goes back hundreds of years uh, to a faction of Judaism, which came to be known as Zionism, who they seek... Uh, to have an, a Jewish state, an Israeli state, because the Bible says so, um, and they think God's a real estate agent. So the reality is, if you go back and you to uh, if you go back, you know, to the origins of Zionism, really you're going back to the late 1800s. But that was really the first time it was like uh, formulated into words. The kind of sentiment had been around for centuries before that. But starting with a guy named Theodore Herzl, who was considered uh, to be the father of Zionism, um, he felt that the need to have a state was more important than anything else. Now, this is, this is extremely important because Zionism is basically a hijacking of Judaism uh, that started really about 150 years ago. So you have Judaism is just like every other religion, very innocuous. It's been around for thousands of years, but then you have an extremist faction that evolved in the late 1800s, um, that really weren't overly religious. Uh, I feel that they exploit Judaism and exploit religion, um, for their own political purposes, right? Today, I would say that Zionism is not Judaism in the least. Um, now, Orthodox Jews read the Torah, and uh, Zionists, if they're religious at all, they refer to the Talmud, which the Talmud is a 5,000-year-old document from Babylonia. Or you know, To me, religion is ridiculous. It's the single worst thing that's ever happened to the planet. Um, and so basically, the Talmud calls for you know, human and animal sacrifices. Um, it says a great many things. Um, now, the... Kind of the mission for both uh, people who follow the Talmud and the Torah is that uh, they're wanting the Messiah to return, right? Well, the Talmud straight up says that the Messiah will not return until six million of God chosen people vanish. All right. Now, that's very important because that ties into World War II and the attitudes of Zionists during World War II. Now, during World War II, I would say between 1939 and uh, 1945, uh, the Zionists basically completely hijacked uh, the religion of Judaism for their own purposes. Um, if you read some of the writings of Orthodox Jews today and back then, um, they hated the Zionists because they felt they were, they were misinterpreting um, the religious texts, right? So uh, the, they say um, in the Torah that uh, when um, that the God's chosen people will be granted a kingdom of their own after the Messiah returns, right? So uh, to the Orthodox Jews, that is more of a spiritual thing, right? You know, more of a kingdom in heaven type thing, not in actual physical worldly state. And so sure. the Zionists, um, in my opinion, are not religious at all. They just use religion as their hook to 
um, to ensnare people, really. Uh, they exploit Judaism to the fullest. I mean, if you ever criticize anything Zionism does or anything Israel does, you're instantly anti-Semitic. And that is actually a tactic that these guys wrote about in the late 1800s. Um, I'm going to read a quote uh, from Theodore Herzl, just so you understand what kind of people these are. Um, so basically, um, well, I'm not going to preface it. I'll just go ahead and I'll read the quote uh, from Theodore Herzl in 1896. Uh, it is essential that the suffering of Jews becomes worse. This will assist in the realization of our plans. I have an excellent idea. I shall induce anti-Semites to liquidate Jewish wealth. The anti-Semites will assist us, thereby in that they will strengthen the persecution and oppression of Jews. The anti-Semites shall be our best friend. Now, if that's, that should give you some kind of idea of how these Zionists think. Um, they claim to be Jews. They are not. Um, I will read another quote. Um, this uh, basically this you can find on Tikkun online, T-I-K-K-U-N. Um, this is a quote from actually it doesn't say who the quote is from, but it was spoken at one of the meetings of the World Zionist Congress. Uh, and so this was from an Orthodox Jew, and he said that Zionists have no right of any sovereignty over even one inch of the Holy Land. They do not represent the Jewish people in any way whatsoever. They have no right to speak in the name of the Jewish people. Their ideology is antithetical to Jewish law, and because they don't behave like Jews, they desecrate the sanctity of the land. They feel that when Israel is recognized as a Zionist and not a Jewish state, that Jews worldwide will be able to live in peace and do it alongside Arabs in the Middle East. So the Orthodox Jews absolutely do not support the Zionists and their uh, basically theft of Palestine from the Palestinians. And that ties into what's going on today because Israel is currently, which has always been a Zionist state, it is not a Jewish state, they have been murdering Palestinians by the thousands when David Ben-Gurion, who was the first prime minister of Israel, got to Palestine. Uh, basically, between 45 and 48, they committed uh, ethnic cleansing on a scale. Uh, they killed about 750,000 Arabs uh, and stole their land, basically, even right. before the nation actually came around. So um, that's kind of to give you a mindset of uh, the people who are behind the Kennedy assassination. Uh, they are political opportunists. They are not Jewish. Zionism, like I said, I believe is a front. Uh, I believe that th uh, the people even further behind that are obviously the guys at the top. You know, I don't do the, the whole Illuminati thing. It's ridiculous because there are real people with real names. We don't have to make a mystery of it. Right. Um, the guys who run the central banks control Israel. And in my opinion, this is just my opinion, um, to try to control the world uh, by controlling a democracy is hard. Uh, but if you can control the world through a single state like Israel, um, then that makes your job a whole lot easier, right? There's no more democracy for you to worry about. And that's definitely the direction that we're going. Um, yeah, so, this, whole, uh, this whole idea of a central bank, you know, it came from the Zionists in, in, the, in the late 1800s. Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, it's not, it's not a stretch. I mean, this is where we're at today. And, uh, you know, like I said, hopefully we've, we've painted a nice arc and revelation as to – where things were at there in the late 40s and the 50s. 
Yeah, and the Middle East, um, the Middle East really, there had been, you know, people exploit the idea that there was always this kind of religious infighting in the Middle East, and that's just not true. Uh, at the turn of the century in Palestine, you had Christians and you had Jews and you had Muslims all living there, you know, for the most part peacefully. Um, but then uh, once the need to take over that land came about by the Zionists, uh, that, I mean, that all went to wayside. And another thing is that these guys are really good at rewriting history, really good. I mean, they've made a science out of it. So a lot of people, you know, you hear people say this fighting's been going on for thousands of years. That is nonsense. Um, okay, so that being said, um, that's the establishment. Basically, uh, to you know, to kind of spell it out in a nutshell, um, Kennedy was murdered by Israel by the Israeli Mossad. Uh, they used a, they did it by using a Mossad front company called Permindex uh, with a branch in Montreal called CMC. CMC uh, was run by a guy named Louis Bloomfield, who was the president of Permindex. But really. These, everybody's a front guy. There's always a guy behind the scenes that nobody knows about, right? And I don't even know where that ends. So, um, but Lewis Bloomfield, directly in the middle of all this Kennedy stuff. Um, anytime you read about Clay Shaw or David Ferry going to Montreal, that's where they're, that's who they're going to see. Oswald even went up to Montreal at one point. Um, so you have Permindex. Now, who's on the board of Permindex? Um, this is really the key thing uh for people to grasp let me see if i can find my slide here um okay so permindex is kind of the nexus of the Mossad, the cia uh and the u.s mafia so key permindex members were uh lewis bloomfield uh frank nagy who was a former hungarian prime minister uh, a guy named John DeMille, uh, De Manil, D-E space M-E-N-I-L. And then you have uh, Roy Cohn, Roy Cohn, who was Trump's lawyer, right? Um, then you've got mob boss Joe Bonanno. Uh, then you have James Angleton, Clay Shaw, Mo Dallitz, who's the mob boss of Las Vegas and the boss of uh, McWilly, right? And then you got Alan Dulles. So all of these guys were on the board of directors for a Mossad CIA front company. And Permindex was um, – basically, they were an assassination factory. All they did was uh, plan and uh, attempt assassinations around the world. They are, were responsible for uh, multiple attempts on the life of Charles de Gaulle. They uh, assassinated Patrice Mamumba, I believe was his name, in the Congo. Yeah. Uh, they – and they assassinated John F. Kennedy. Now, I don't really – I haven't gotten to the point where uh, – of Permindex post-Kennedy – um, but we're talking the same uh, group of individuals uh, were responsible for the murder of Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, the attempt on George Wallace, um, Oklahoma City 93, the World Trade or 95, the World Trade Center 1993, and of course 9/11. Um, also the Paris shootings and the London bombings. I mean, these people are a parasite and a, and a nuisance to the world, and they've been doing this for 50 years. And guess what? Um, our governments know it. All these governments know it, and they allow it to happen. Um, and to me, this is why Kennedy is so important. Like Kennedy is the nexus of, of understanding of everything that's going on in the world today. If you want to understand what's going on in the world today, you need to understand Kennedy. And you can't understand Kennedy unless you understand the mob, unless you understand World War II and the Holocaust. I mean, you've got to go back. You've got to go back 100 years to really grasp 
the connections. And I, like I said, I've only scratched the surface. No, I don't think it's even possible to digest all this in a lifetime. It's so much. Um, but these are, these are the people that we're dealing with. These are the fundamentals. Um, and now let's tie this back into the mob. So you've got guys who answer to, to the Mossad, Menachem Begin and uh, Yitzhak Shamir and Yitzhak Rabin, all of whom were in, in Delia Plaza that day. Um, you have these guys who are working with the Sicilian mafia, um, Joe Bonanno, you know, that's out of, that's out of New York. And when you look at where these guys kind of intersect with what we would normally call the mob, um, it's clear that the role of the trigger pullers was definitely the Chicago outfit, hundred percent. Um, now the Chicago outfit was basically murder Inc, you know, and, uh, so it's really not much of a mystery anymore. Uh, okay, let's uh, let, let's to kind of uh, prove that or make my point. Um, there's one photo that people have talked about since Kennedy assassination, and for some reason it has gone you know unidentified, and it drives me crazy that it's been like 60, 70 years, however long it's been, um, and nobody has named this guy because it t to me, after studying um, the outfit and after studying the mob for a while. Um, Basically, I, once I got a feel for who's who, um, once I started looking through the pictures at Daily Plaza, it was obvious who some people were. Um, like I, I, I tell people, if you want to understand the Kennedy assassination, don't study the Kennedy assassination. You have to study all these different things individually, and then you'll see where everything overlaps. Um, but the picture of the old man being escorted out of the Texas School Book Depository that's just been called the old man, that's Marshall Caifano. Marshall Caifano is a longtime Chicago outfit guy. Uh, hitman, um, but by then he was an older guy. He was sixty something, I believe. He, uh, if you if you see in the photograph, he's got a radio in his pocket. Um, I mean, I don't think we need much more of a clue than that. Like for sixty years, people are like, "Oh, was he involved?" I don't know. Maybe the radio in his pocket should be a clue, right? I'm very frustrated with a lot of Kennedy research that I read because it's like, "Hello, this is right in front of your face. Why haven't Why haven't you uh, figured this out?" But Marshall Caifano, um, he was definitely not a shooter. I mean, he, he's not going to shoot somebody and then pick up a radio and put it in his pocket. He was obviously the radio guy in the book depository. Um, and another person in the book depository who, you know, I think people have said he's everybody from Malcolm Wallace to, you know, Santa Claus, but there's a drawing of a guy with the, uh, the kind of, you know, frizzy hair and glasses. Uh, that's, that looks exactly like Richard Kane. And at the time, Richard Kane was directly working for Marshall Caifano uh, doing burglaries in Chicago. So to me, it's not a stretch uh, to put the two of them in the book depository. Now, um, once you establish you got the Chicago outfit, who else are you going to use? Who are the best of the best in the outfit? Well, you definitely got Nicoletti, but I don't think Nicoletti was there. He was based – They were the FBI was onto him because he just murdered a guy in Chicago like a week before. You know, So I think odds of Nicoletti taking a chance of being seen or busted you know, on, a, on a second murder, especially of the president in that short of time, I think he was on the lam somewhere. You know, And a lot of people say Roselli was there. Uh, the FBI had eyes on Roselli, and he was at the Desert Inn in Las Vegas at the time. He even testified to that in front of either the Warren Commission or the Church Committee or one of those. Right. So um, I think he pretty much ruled Roselli out. Was he involved in the planning? Of course he was. Uh, Roselli uh, was deeply tied in with the CIA through Cuba. 
Um, we're not going to get into the relationship with Cuba yet, but that's what people you know look to Cuba as the nexus and the meeting point. No, the meeting point between all these guys was way before that. I mean, the mafia has always been involved with the with the government, the U.S. government, to run contraband. Um, hell, going back to the late 1800s, um, you know, you had the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which I discovered some fascinating things this week about the FBN. That's my next thing I'm going to tackle. That is another hidden. Uh, key to the Kennedy assassination, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Um, guys like Anslinger and um, another guy named um, Malachi Harney, who was in charge of Al uh, the investigation of by Elliot Ness over Al Capone. So there's there's a ton there I need to get into. That's that's some that's some really cool stuff. Yeah, but I mean, um we all know that the CIA has been involved in 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 running drugs and supplying the United States with you know cocaine, opium, heroin. And it's not a stretch to think and go back that far, you know, to when the mafia was running alcohol illegally. And, you know, people are always going to get what they want, <laughs> you know, yeah. and why not make money on both sides of the deal? You can make money by supplying what they want, and you can also make money enforcing laws against what they want. Yep. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, play both sides. They're making it both ways. Yeah, exactly. So... Uh, so that relationship between the CIA and the and the mafia had been there. Uh, the publicized end of that was Cuba and the the um, was Operation Mongoose, you know, trying to take out Castro. But I'm kind of blown away. They spent like 15, 20 years trying to take out a guy on a rinky dink little island and they couldn't do it. It just something doesn't smell right there. And when you dig into more of the relationship with Castro, I think basically all that Castro stuff, and this is just my opinion based on what I've read so far, I think all that all that anti-communist, I hate, uh, you know, Castro stuff was kind of a front for uh, their guns and drug smuggling. I, you know, uh, Castro was probably a CIA agent the whole freaking time. Right. Um, you know, there's no uh, way there's no way that if he was what they what they said he was, that he would have been allowed to, you know, live a nice full long life 60 miles off of our shore yeah yeah no doubt you know. no doubt and here and you know they, they like our government just pushes this myth of good guys and bad guys i mean exactly like and that that carries over to all kinds of stuff you know i, I was a cop for a long time and basically you know the, they, they pushed that myth to, to cops like there's good guys and bad guys that's it's not true it's not true at all now are there some bad people who go out there and you know do really bad things of course they are there are but to categorically say that there are good guys and bad guys is ridiculous. Um, yeah, and Castro used to visit, you know, the United States all the time when he oh, was yeah. alive. His, know, uh, he had a buddy named Robert McEwen, who uh, Kennedy investigators should, or people who follow Kennedy should know about, Danny know, Galveston. Sure thing. So these guys all work together. They're all buddies. You know what I mean? Uh, Republican Democrat is the dumbest thing ever. Like in modern politics, like they keep just pitting us against each other and they both take money from the same people. It's our, our entire world is one big act of political theater. It's really disgusting. Um, but uh, so, yeah, all these guys are buddies. Um, and by the Kennedy assassination, people try to make a separation between these organizations and they can't. There's, there's, there's one organization, the, the Mossad. The CIA, the FBI, Secret Service, they're all controlled by the same people. And on November 22nd, 1963, there was a coup d'etat by a foreign nation. They overthrew our government using our own people. Um, and we have been an Israeli colony ever since. And, you know, for people who tell me I'm crazy, uh, explain to me why we have over 25 states with anti-BDS laws that are 
blatantly unconstitutional. There were case law in the 80s that settled all the things that these anti-BDS laws are trying to do, um, but they've bought all of our politicians, every last one of them. And that's see, that's another thing. That's where it ties into the, like, this Jeffrey Epstein guy. Like, they don't just people don't just work together because they like each other. These guys use blackmail. You know, they get you on uh, Epstein's plane one time and you're fucking in their pocket for life. You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, that's how politics works. And if you don't play ball, they kill you. Um, nothing has changed. Um, it's it's worse today, I'd say, than ever. Um, you know, you can even go on Wikipedia and look up a history of uh, Mossad assassinations and they just got a list on Wikipedia of like 50 of them. And like... That's what we're supposed to know. How many have there been really, you know? So um, it may, I, I don't pay my taxes anymore. I'm over it. I'm never going to pay them again. Uh, good luck putting me in front of a jury uh, and, uh, and and me losing uh, because we are not a democracy. We are beyond an oligarchy. We are on our way to pure fascism in this country called democracy. Um, the definitions of things that we always kind of accepted as real are no longer real. Like, you know, Go ask a Pompeo what we're doing around the world. Oh, we're trying to spread democracy. Yeah, like no way, buddy. Sorry, I can't say what right. I want to say because of the you know <laughs> I don't want to curse, but it's it's ridiculous. I mean, this is the thing. We live in the information age. You can debunk. We're debunking these guys in real time. You know what I mean? Like these guys who work for our government who say all the all these lies. Literally five minutes later, we know they're lying. You know what I mean? Like back in the day in the sixties, you didn't. We didn't. They didn't have that. They never could have envisioned that there would be an internet that you could look this information up on, right? I got all these guys, you know, entire life history. And did they ever think that was going to be possible? No. I mean, back then they didn't have, you know, computer networks with your guy's photo. You know, you could have had 10 IDs with 10 names and they just had to take your word for it. That's how these guys got a lot away with a lot of stuff. Um, well, yeah. Dulles so, thought nobody would ever read the report. Yeah. And that was just reading a book. I mean. <laughs> yep. Um, what's, what's pissing me off is that we're just now, right now in history, at a time when most of these guys are dead already and there's nobody to hold accountable, you know? Um, maybe Bill Moyers, is he still alive? Because he was in on this too. You know, that guy needs to be locked up. But, um, I think he did. <laughs> yeah, I think he might be one of the only ones. I mean, it was him who said that uh, they told uh, Secret Service they didn't need the, uh, the hard top on the, on the limo. That was Bill Moyers. So, yeah, and this, um, all, this all, what you're, what you're talking about here, as far as getting, you know, the top leaders to be um, subservient to, to the nation of Israel, you know, you have all these top politicians with dual citizenship. Yep. Um, and, we'll, and we'll get into a couple of them because um, I think there's a few important ones that we should pay attention to. And it also ties in with what happened in, on 9-11 as well. Absolutely. Which is, is a whole nother. <laughs> but, you know. But this um, actually ties, this it, ties us right into the Kennedy-Bengurian yeah. dispute. So, um so these Zionists, they don't think the rules apply to us um, or to them. They don't think the rules apply to them. They feel that the world should be subservient to them. They don't care about international law. They don't care that it's illegal to uh, go around the world and assassinate people. Uh, they just don't give a shit um, because what starts with getting an Israeli state leads to Israel taking over the world. Um, and that is exactly their plan. They're so arrogant. They write about it. I mean – Everybody should read A Plan for Israel in the 80s, I believe it's called, by Oded Yanan. I mean, he spells out that they need to like basically disrupt uh, the governments of all the countries around them so that they can expand to the Greater Israel Project. And that's what this is all about, the Greater Israel Project. People want to call it the Illuminati or the New World Order. No, there is no Illuminati. There is only Zionists. 
and their Greater Israel Project. That is exactly what's going on in the world today. And when people want to say it's uh, just a conspiracy theory, it's not. They openly uh, uh, talk about this because that's how arrogant they are. And if you want to go back even further than that, Mr. X, you can go back and read the protocols of the meetings of the learned elders of Zion. Yes. Now, of course, the Zionists say that that's a forgery and a prank, but we all know it's not. No. I mean, if you read some of this stuff in here, um, you know, it's it, it will give you a good idea of exactly where we are today. And every thing that they talked about back then has come to fruition. So. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's very scary um, because uh, they are the ones who currently control uh, Google and YouTube and all these platforms that are censoring. When you look at what they're censoring, they're not really censoring. Um, there's a lot of hate speech still out there. There's people who are definitely ignorant assholes who are spewing nonsense on the internet, and they just let them do it because it it helps the purpose. But if you start talking about what's going on in Israel or anything related to their agenda, you're instantly banned. If you support, if you defend the Palestinians, you're instantly banned, and that's because the government can't censor you. So what do they do? They outsource the censorship. You see? Yeah, and all this was published. 116 years ago, folks, 1903. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fast yeah, forward um, 10 years, you've got the creation of the central banking system. And then we go into World War One, World War Two. you know, the creation of the uh, uh, Central Intelligence Agency and the intelligence connections all through the world. Then the Kennedy assassination and on and on and on up the ranks. And here we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, see, and this is where people really don't understand. They're like, how could these Zionists in, in Israel work with the Nazis? Because that's that's really what they did back, going back to 1933 and what's called the Havara Agreement. The Zionists basically cut a deal with Hitler that they could come and go as they please, and they would they would they would not be affected by what he was doing uh, by you know rounding up and deporting all the Jews. They were they were exempt from that. And besides being exempt from that, um, if you were a Jew and you were in their clique, you could leave uh, Germany and go to uh, Palestine. And basically, um, that was totally fine by Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler had sent people down to um, Palestine, and they had cut deals with the British and the whole nine yards, right? So the Zionists were actively working with um, Adolf Hitler. So, And the reason that they could do that is because they're fascists. Ultimately, now not like Italian fascists, but the you know the ideas of fascism, and you know uh, uh, killing democracy, and you know that was fine with Alan Dulles, you know on behalf of America, that was fine with the Zionists, it was fine with the Nazis. So the overlap between these groups that you would think not work together work together because they don't care about democracy. They want to rule the world, you know. Yeah. Uh, now I have to assume that within that 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 packed you know they have you know there, there's factions in there that want different things i'm sure that i'm that i have no knowledge on whatsoever but it's the ideas of fascism that unite these people and the rifle of lee harvey oswald was chosen of or, or not lee harvey oswald you know but the manlico carcano was chosen as a symbol of italian fascism i mean hello that was not just a coincidence that was that was planned um the rifle was traced back to a guy named samuel cummings who was a cia arms dealer back then um, yeah, I always thought that was an interesting choice for a weapon. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was a piece of garbage. I mean, it yeah. was junk. It was chosen as a symbol of fascism defeating democracy. Uh, that's it. I mean, it's, it's to me, it's as plain as day. And that comes from Michelle Mehta's book. If you have, there's really only two books I really re- strongly recommend reading on Kennedy, and that's Michael Collins Piper's Final Judgment 
and um, CMC, the secret CIA and Mossad station, I believe it was called by Michelle Mehta. Um, see, we have the Permindex documents. There's no denying it anymore. Um, one of the, I, I'm not as researched on this area as I should be, but one of the Permindex guys died and his wife like gave his papers to the archive or something like that. And uh, you know, they've been, there have been lawsuits like crazy trying to get those papers, um, you know, uh, taken away from whoever has them. But they've already all been leaked. I mean, they're all over the internet. We know exactly um, what the sentiment of these permanent Permindex guys was. We have letters back and forth, all in the original Italian. I mean, uh, there's no question whatsoever that uh, Permindex was behind the assassination. So, okay. Um, and this idea that Permindex has been behind the assassination has been out there for many, many years. Oh, yeah, the 60s. It's been Jim out there Garrison since, um... was chasing this. That's why he chose to indict Clay Shaw, um, or part of the reason he chose to indict Clay Shaw was because of these connections with Permindex and, and other stuff that he really couldn't say publicly because he would have been, uh, you know, on the short end of the stick. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you can go back. One of the first books to talk about it was by uh, Gary Ween. You know, there's a fish in the courthouse. Um, I still have not been able to track that down, but that uh, Michael Collins Piper uh, really gives a lot of credit to Gary Ween. Um, he pretty much figured this thing out way back then. And uh, so, yeah, the information's been out there. You know, I heard someone once say that uh, the Kennedy assassination is a thousand piece puzzle with 10,000 pieces. And that's exactly what it is. Um, Cause you can make the connections from the people at the top to the people who pulled the triggers, but then you still have this whole ocean of information that fills in little gaps, you know? Um, so, all right. Uh, where to what's next on the list of on the uh, agenda. Rob. Sorry, I had a damn microphone muted there. Yeah, no problem. Let, let's slide into entire. I was looking for some of the connections with these top leaders from back in the day to Israel. Um, I don't know if you have the uh, the Kennedy look for the Rumsfeld letter. Oh, the the Rumsfeld letter? Yeah, I have that. Have that? Yep, I got it. Okay, I'll look for the Kennedy letter about Demona. So you know, there's been a big, well, the, the big tie-in, at least you know, when it comes to possible reasons for Kennedy's assassination, has been part of this letter from May twelfth, nineteen sixty-three, to David Ben Gurion concerning their nuclear facility at Demona because um, they would not let us inspect it. Um, it says, quote, we are concerned with the disturbing effects on world stability which would accompany the development of nuclear weapons capability by Israel. I cannot imagine that the Arabs would have refrained from turning to the Soviet Union for assistance if Israel were to develop a nuclear weapons capability with all the consequences this would hold. But the problem is much larger than its impact on the Middle East. Development of a nuclear weapons capability by Israel would almost certainly lead to lead other larger countries that have so far refrained from such development to feel that they must follow suit. As I made clear in my press conference on May 8th, we have a deep commitment to the security 
of Israel. In addition, this country supports Israel in a wide variety of other ways, which are well known to both of us. <laughs> I can well appreciate your concern for developments in the UAR, but I see no present or imminent nuclear threat to Israel from there. I'm assured that our intelligence on this question is good, and the Egyptians do not presently have any installation comparable to Demona, nor any facilities potentially capable of nuclear weapons production. And we skip down. I trust this message will convey the sense of urgency and the perspective in which I view your government's early assent to the proposal first put to you by Ambassador Barber on April 2nd. Sincerely, John F. Kennedy. Now, that's pretty much him telling Israel that they don't need nuclear weapons. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a veiled threat that, you know, we need to come over and inspect to make sure you're not developing nuclear weapons, um, which is which is interesting. Because as a viable superpower in the early 60s, you need to have nuclear capabilities. And the only two nations at that time that had them were us and the Russians. And here comes Israel, you know. And according to Kennedy, Kennedy was very concerned about it. Yeah, yeah, he sure was. Um, so there's a lot of history to Israel uh, and their attempts to acquire a bomb. Uh, and if people are not familiar, uh, they should absolutely research Numec, the Numec Corporation. Um, basically, they had had spies in there and they stole nuclear material from the United States out of a place in Pennsylvania and ended up contaminating the land there. Um, and that's where they got their uh, initial uh, plutonium from. They stole it from us. Um, and uh, our government knew about it and did nothing. The FBI knew about it, did nothing. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, real quick. Um, there's an instance of Oswald visiting supposedly, allegedly, a nuclear facility in I think it was Tennessee or Kentucky. I mean, his name is on the register of visitors, but he can't really be accounted for during that time. And it's just an odd, just an odd thing, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, the more I look into Oswald, the more I think that there never was a Lee Harvey Oswald. Like, uh, there were so many people impersonating him. Um, then you've got like the, you know, the two Oswald theory where, you know, cause somebody had been using the name and birth certificate and all the same stuff going back, uh, you know, 10 years before the Kennedy assassination. I mean, there's two different women in the photographs who are identified as Marguerite Oswald, who she worked for the CIA and Robert Oswald worked for the CIA and, you know, it's 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 crazy. So I can't say that Oswald necessarily did or didn't. Um, hopefully in my lifetime, there'll be a time when I can dedicate just to Oswald's multiple identities. Um, but uh, I mean, hell, even the CIA documents called him Lee Henry Oswald. So um, who knows if that was actually him or not. But there's definitely a nuclear connection. And that nuclear connection, um, you know, in part is through Jack Ruby and uh, uh, Lawrence Meyer. Remember, Lawrence Meyer was there with... Uh, what was her aunts? Was that her name? I forget. Remember the call from David right. Ferry to that Chicago apartment? Um, yep. Like his company was directly implicated in uh, in assisting uh, Israel smuggle out nuclear components. So um, the smuggling activities of Ruby are very key. Also, um, not to get off a, a tangent, but he you know he was running guns uh, to Cuba on behalf of the CIA uh, through Galveston uh, with Robert McEwen. Um, 
who was Thomas McKenna. They, they talk about Thomas McKenna. That's Robert McHugh. And these guys weren't, I don't know, they changed their names, gave an alias, and it was still similar to the other name. It's, it's weird how they did it. But um, but yeah, the, the smuggling was a big deal. I mean, uh, from what I've read, Jack Ruby helped in the smuggling of Jews out of Europe into Galveston Bay also. So that guy was was deep in the middle of everything. You know, he, he worked for Johnson. He worked for Nixon directly. Um nobody can really emphasize enough how important Jack Ruby was. And Jack Ruby, people, you know, think he worked for the mob. Uh, No, he worked for Meyer Lansky. And so, uh, and just one example, you know, after Oswald got arrested, who did he call? He calls Al Gruber. Al Gruber was Mickey Cohen's right-hand man. And Mickey Cohen uh, was recruited into the Ergun by Menachem Begin uh, in L.A. back in 1949. You know, uh, I read that uh, Mickey Cohen got so into the pro-Israel and Ergun um, missions that uh, he was neglecting his uh, mob stuff that he had to do. You know, so um, that's the level of dedication a lot of these guys had. Once they got recruited, they were they were die hard. Um, so that's a that's I think an interesting connection from Jack Ruby right to you know the government of Israel. Um, so, right. And people will say, well, that's a, that's a different Jacob Rubenstein. Well, prove it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, yeah, it's interesting. So I've read this week is something I, I need to, it's on my to-do list to, to figure out. But, um, when, uh, Jack Ruby is being interviewed after he shot Oswald, he gave the name of one of his brothers as Samuel Rubenstein, but I can't find a Samuel Rubenstein on any other, um, any other documents related to Jack Ruby. So, cause he had Earl and he had Hyman and that was supposed to be it, but he called one of his brothers, Samuel Rubenstein. So I'm not really sure what that is. Just a little interesting. Maybe he changed his name too. Who knows? These guys all have like three names. You know, these guys all have multiple names. Uh, hell George DeMornshield had like six. Yeah. That's we'll get into him. Don't worry. Um, all right. So let's real quick before we wrap it up for this one, let's get into this Donald Rumsfeld letter. Do you have it handy? Yeah, I sure do. Um, Go ahead and read that for us. And and this is just to illustrate, you know, some allegiances that were taking place. And, and make sure you include the date when you read this letter, okay? Um, yeah, my, I got to zoom in on it. My eyes are going. Um, give me just one second. Here, I'll give it to you. The, the, the date is July 15th, 1963. Oh, yeah, I got it. Okay, so. And the letter is to. Um, I have the letter to Mr. Kennedy from Donald Rumsfeld. Now, everybody should be familiar with Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, he was one of the traitors who worked for um, George Bush and the other George Bush. And if you're an evil guy, at some point you work with Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah. Well, he so, worked Nixon's administration as well. So. Yep. Yep, Nixon. Uh, Nixon was definitely not a good guy, uh, but he was definitely not in control of his own decisions. I'll tell you that much. Uh, all right. So, dear Mr. Kennedy, several thoughtful and valued constituents have expressed their concern to me over a report in the June 28th issue of the Chicago edition of the Wall Street Journal, which indicated that the determination by the Justice Department of the question of registration of the American Zionist Council as an agent of the Israeli government will depend upon the risk of offending Jewish opinion in the United States. I would greatly appreciate your comments on this statement and also a report as to the policy the Department of Justice will follow in determining this question. Thank you, Donald Rumsfeld. So basically, um, 
FARA was the Foreign Agent Registration Act. It's been in place since 1933. And it basically says that if you are in the United States and you're working on behalf of a foreign government, you have to register under FARA. Now, once you register under FARA, you are absolutely not allowed to contribute any money to any American political campaign. Um, so basically, Kennedy was demanding of uh, Ben Gurion. Now, when you say, when I say Ben Gurion, uh, he might not have even been the prime minister at the time, but Ben Gurion ran the show until he died. Um, whether or not he was in office, he was the guy. So uh, Ben Gurion saw the combination of Kennedy's trying to uh, stop him from building a nuclear arsenal combined with the demand to register under FARA, which means they could never spend any money to influence our elections. Um, the combination of those two were seen by Ben-Gurion as a fundamental threat uh, to Israel's existence. They saw the need to own America, and they saw a need to have nukes. Um, they are monsters. Uh, so because the rules don't apply to them, they needed to find ways around um, both of these issues, right? So this right here ties into the relationship with Lyndon Johnson and a couple key people who started to um, be involved with Lyndon Johnson in really the mid-1950s, uh, guys like Bill Moyers and a guy in particular named Jack Valenti. Jack yeah. Valenti is the most overlooked person in the entire Kennedy uh, assassination world. Uh, he might be one of the most important figures in all of American history. Um, and no one ever talks about him when you talk about Kennedy. So I'll, I'll kind of, I'll, I'll digress for a moment onto Jack Valente and I'll keep me on track here because I could talk about him for days. Um, <laughs> yeah. Jack Valente basically is, uh, genetically related. He's actually related to, um, guys who were in the mob. Uh, Umberto Valente is a relate is he's related to him. Uh, his father was Joe Valenti. Um, who went by another name. He wasn't a big guy in the mob, but he was down there in the Houston area and he was working with guys like Joseph Villo and he was working with connections in St. Louis. And so Jack Valenti is born into a mob family, but it seems like from the beginning, he was almost like intentionally separated or kept out of it, almost like he was like a plant, you know? Um, so Jack Valenti goes off to uh, World War II and he's in the OSS. Uh, obviously, you can't find a document that says that, but his behavior for the rest of his life pretty much <laughs> screamed OSS. And that's where a lot of these guys met. Um, the OSS was a really – it was key because a lot of these guys who were – whether they were mob or it didn't matter where they came from, everybody went to war in World War II, right? So everybody was overseas, uh, and everybody at some point in time came across the OSS, right? So that's another connection between everybody you know, we're talking about. Um, so Jack Valenti basically, uh, from a very, I think maybe even before he went off to the war, uh, he worked for humble oil. Um, he started out as like a, a sales guy or an assistant or something. And he worked his way up and humble oil was, uh, Prescott Bush's, uh, oil company. Right. So you have a connection, uh, between humble oil and everybody back then. I mean, George DeMorne shield, um, Everybody knew everybody. Also, especially if you were in Houston or Galveston, you uh, you knew everybody through Humble Oil. And so Jack Valenti um, had all these connections um, to intelligence through the OSS. He had connections to the mafia. I mean, he gets back from World War II 
and he applied to go to Harvard Business School and he got rejected uh, because his grades weren't good enough. Well, he took a trip up there and somehow mysteriously got them accept him into not only their, their the school, but into in like an accelerated honors program. Right. <laughs> so he goes up there. He does whatever secret society stuff they're doing up there because um, he was connected to the humble oil. He was OSS. He has mafia connections. So you can see just by his background, this guy is right in the middle of everything. And so he starts to hang out with Johnson in the 1950s. So by 1960, he owns his own ad company. It's called Weekly and Valente. They handled some of Kennedy's uh, campaign stuff. They handled Johnson's uh, re-election or his, yeah, his election campaign or I don't know if it's re-election if he, you know, he didn't get elected the first time. So uh, he was a key part of Johnson's operation way before the Kennedy assassination. And um, if you read the Jack Valenti file, you'll find out that they had blackmail on uh, Lyndon Johnson. They had some inappropriate photographs, which basically means that him and Jack Valente were hooking up and he had photographs of it. Um, Jack Valenti is extremely, extremely key because he uh, got hired on uh, November 22nd, 1963. He had organized the Albert Thomas uh, dinner, right, the day before. He yeah. had organized the uh, all pretty much all the events that he handled everything for Kennedy's trip. He was the one who put out the invitation for Kennedy to come to Dallas in the first place. Um, and he was on the flight out with Johnson. He was on Air Force One when he flew out. The picture of him is the creepiest picture uh, I've ever seen. When you look at it and you understand his background and what he was doing there, um, you will it, it, it's like, wow. Um, but yeah, so he got hired on the spot, hopped on Air Force One, um, flew back to Washington, D.C. And th it was crazy because um, from the, the minute Johnson became president, anyone who wanted to talk to Johnson went through Valenti. Like, that's just how it was. Yeah. And after Jack Valenti um, – so – Jack Valenti had stuff in his background. He was associated with mobsters in Las Vegas, and the FBI knew it. It came up in the background check. Yeah, um, Hollywood too, you know. Yeah, uh, I, I'll get to that. So um, he um, basically Jack Valenti was so key in the Kennedy assassination. Um, oh, and here's another thing. Oh, I don't even know if I want to get into this. This could take all day, but. I, uh, I have reason to believe that Jack Valente was also uh, a super stealth uh, hitman for the mob and for the uh, possibly even the Scorzani networks. Um, there is some very, very incriminating stuff in the uh, Johnson uh, in some of the Johnson files and in Jack Valente's file in regards to weird uh, cryptic messages. You know, so um, interesting. <laughs> yeah, he is a he is. That guy is pure evil. And after he left the uh, administration, um, you know, because the FBI was on to him. He had three years, and finally they're like, we know this guy. We know what's going on with this guy. And before they get any kind of action could be taken, he left and he went to go replace um, Lou Wasserman uh, in uh, Hollywood as the guy – as the head of the MPAA. The MPAA controls everything that comes out of Hollywood, and that became Jack Valenti. Uh, he went on a major, major mission uh, against Oliver Stone when that movie came out, but I think that was really more false. I think that was kind of set up because JFK was uh, basically a propaganda film by, you know, produced by Arnon Milchan. Right. So, um, 
So basically, he controlled the flow of information that we've all had, have, have absorbed since 1966 until he died in 2014. Everything that came out of Hollywood went through him. Um, he got to control the flow of information, you know, uh, and that's what Lou Wasserman did before him. Uh, weird, interesting piece of information on Jack Valenti. In 1959, he was the CIA li liaison to the Manchurian candidate, right? So but why? He didn't have any connections in government then. He didn't have um, – or he hadn't been active in government, and he hadn't been active in Hollywood. So what made him qualified to do that job? You know, yeah. um, That guy was hardcore CIA, and the world just doesn't know about it. Um, so uh, I'd love to write a book about him one day. But So yeah, so you've got um, – that's the relationship there with Jack Valenti. But by the time that Johnson took over, all of his men were CIA. Um, I have an extremely strong suspicion that even Lem Johns, who was Secret Service, I believe that he was CIA agent um, Ronald Augustinovich, which you'll read about if you read about Interpen and all the Cuban stuff. Right. Uh, there's only one picture of Augustinovich, and man, that that you know that tell that looks just like uh, Lem Johns. And usually in in Canada, and when you're researching Kennedy, there's no coincidences, and nobody looks similar. If you think it's going on, it's probably going on. So. Um, but yeah, by the time Johnson got to office, all the support people were put in place for him. Uh, the this, this CIA and the Mossad are the same organization. People need to stop trying to separate them. Um, so uh, you had FBI guys. You had like Clifton Carter. You had uh, everyone who surrounded Johnson was already you know, part of the, of the coup. And if not directly involved with the killing of Kennedy, with the larger scale coup of overthrowing our government you know, through a coup d'etat. That was already in place. And so a lot of these guys, even if they weren't directly in on you know, the nuts and bolts of the assassination itself, they were part of the bigger, larger picture. Um, so, yeah, we lost our country to a foreign nation on that day. And, uh, you know, history has pretty much backs that up through everything that we're seeing today. Israel is allowed to go and fund, you know, all of our politicians. They do it through using dummy companies and their individual uh, members. They funnel money from individual members in the tune of billions. Um, you know, when you're a congressman, you get out of their or your orientation, you got to go have a day with APAC. Um, right. And this all this all came from the wanting to make the American Zionist Council register as a foreign agent. Um, so that's pretty much uh, that's yeah, pretty course, much where we lost everything. Yeah, and everybody everybody is pretty familiar, you know, that Johnson kind of forced his way onto the ticket. You know, as being uh, Kennedy's running mate, but maybe, maybe there were some other things going on behind the scenes that people don't really know about that that were forcing uh, Lyndon Johnson on that ticket, with the foreknowledge of knowing that once we got this guy in place, we're good to go. You know what I mean? And yep. it's it's very interesting to take all this in and, and think about it. And uh, this seems like a good spot to, to stop for this week. Let me just, uh, let me just say one yeah. more thing real yeah, quick. Yeah, go ahead. Um, you have to think that no policies changed um, after uh, Kennedy got assassinated. Nothing towards the Federal Reserve, really nothing towards the mafia. Um, I mean, all the things that people say Kennedy was assassinated for just are not true. Um, the only things that changed were our uh, policies towards Israel. Um that's it. The, the issue of Demona went away. The issue of the American Zionist Council went away. You know, the U.S. Congress, the day before, on November 21st, 63, they sent their final letter to the government of Israel demanding that, that uh, the American Zionist Council will register. And then um, Kennedy shot the next day. And that took 100 percent of the pressure off of Israel. So um, 
that's that. That's about that. And uh, I think that is a good place to wrap it up for today. Well, deal. I appreciate it, Mr. X, and all this fantastic information you're bringing to us. And hopefully the listeners out there took the time to digest it all and, and were able to, to follow along with us. It's an interesting, uh, very rarely heard take on the Kennedy assassination, um, something that, that people have d- dismissed offhand in the past that they really need to pay attention to. So next week I'm going to have Mr. X back, and we're going to get into some other things and make some more connections. So we'll see you then, folks. Thank you, Mr. X, for, for coming on the show, and uh, we'll be back to you next week. Hey, buddy. All right. Thank you, man. Good to be here. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 US only.